The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. In this third part of my interview with Sir Glenn, we discuss the conclusion of his work in the Gulf and talk a little about the rest of his distinguished career. At the end of the First Gulf War, when you guys uh, took your uh, dusty uh, but slightly now scratched um, tornadoes home, what was it like to get back uh, to your base? Uh, it was great. We were really lucky. I mean, the detachment didn't lose any any guys. My biggest fear, if I'm honest, was we just spent six months doing some really exciting workup flying, 100 foot flying, 250 foot night TF flying and such like. We then had three months out on operations and I thought, how am I going to get the boys to obey the rules when we get home? But it was fascinating to see how the guys just slipped straight back into normal peacetime operations. And I'm, I'm convinced in the way I analysed it in my own mind, you know, they got all of the excitement out of their system. They didn't need to prove anything to anybody. They'd done it. Um, and it was so I didn't really have to, to worry about it. Excellent. Now, you actually had quite a small detachment uh, from... 13 squadron out there you must have formed pretty close fighting relationship with those guys yeah and again people ask me you know what was the biggest lesson I learned a lot about human nature during it because of course suddenly you see people under you know quite significant stress and everybody handles stress differently as well um, but it was fascinating just to see how people you knew I knew pretty well how they responded to you know, prolonged pressure and a really odd lifestyle as well for the period that we were out there because um, we used to sleep during the day um, and then obviously go and fly at night and it was just a really weird environment. Now I was immensely impressed with the, with the blokes, not just the aircrew, I mean the ground crew who used to work you know, every hour that God gave them, keeping the jets going and the kit going as well. So, uh, no, it was, it was a great experience. And um, I, I used very hard in a war environment, but was there anything um, amusing uh, that occurred that you could perhaps relate to us? I'm not sure if I can think of anything amusing, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, no, it's a bit tricky. I'll tell you what, though, because we were, we were dry in, um, in Dharan as well, no surprise, which I actually I'm great, very grateful for. Um, I don't think that's the sort of thing you want to go off and um, have a few pints before you leap into your, your jet, or you know, leap into your jet with a hangover. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's very cheap when you go off to Bahrain after the war and you haven't had any, anything to drink for three months because you only need a couple of pints and <laughs> you're well inebriated. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Um, that, well, that's it for us with regards to your operational stuff, unless there's anything I've missed. No, I say so I just had I was in the right place at the right time, both as a squadron commander and then when I was AOC to be able to um, participate in those campaigns and because of the other jobs I did during my career, I've been really involved in operations all my all my service career, which has been a great privilege to see, you know, what the UK delivers at the end of the day across all three services. 
Great. Well, thanks very much. Um, before you go, though, um, perhaps we could examine just a little bit of uh, your career, which, of course, went on until you were the most senior officer in the Royal Air Force and basically ran the show. Um, at one point, you were chief of joint operations. What kind of a job was that? And were you doing things like attending COBRA meetings? I ought to perhaps explain that at COBRA meetings, senior ministers from the British government are briefed on major events and emergencies. I, um, my first experience of the Permanent Joint Headquarters, PJHQ, was actually as a one-star. So after I'd um, finished my station commander at Bruggen, went off and did the Royal College of Defence Studies, and then I was posted out of that to be Assistant Chief of Staff Operations in PJHQ. The headquarters only just stood up, so about 18 months before I joined, two years before I joined, it stood up. And this was an institution which had been created, and many people were quite sceptical about the PJHQ, but it, it proved its value um, straight off in terms of coordinating and then running the UK's operations. So we were able to, to bring together the joint force and then then manage and well, deploy it, execute the operation, and then bring the force home, and then give it back, give the force back to the, the single services. So I did, um, I did two years as, as ACOS J3, and that's when we did the Kosovo campaign. Um, we were still doing operations in Iraq, in the no-fly fly zones, and then we had peaks of activity, like Operation Desert Fox and such like, when Saddam misbehaved. Um, and then there were non-combatant evacuations we used to run as well every so often if you had to evacuate UK entitled people out of, uh, out of unstable bits of the world, plus humanitarian operations. So um, I, in years after that, I then became Chief of Joint Operations. And at that stage, we were clearly running Iraq, Afghanistan, um, continuing operations in the Balkans um, and again anything which popped up out of the woodwork you know very quickly it could be a humanitarian um, relief operation it could be a non-combatant operation fascinating job really fascinating and great to see um, our people from all three services out on operations one of the most impressive and satisfying bits of the job to be quite honest to see how you know, relative youngsters in many cases are given an incredible amount of responsibility and very, very rarely let you down. Uh, and I, I was really impressed. Now, rather controversially, um, when you were Chief of the Air Staff, you uh, argued for the consolidation of the UK's air power, um, which basically meant you want to take you wanted to take the jets away from the Royal Navy. How did that go down? Um, I think it needs to be it needed to be viewed in you know, the wider context that defence was under real pressure from a financial perspective, and the Air Force had done a huge amount in terms of how can we consolidate our headquarters, how can we support our equipment better, and we'd made massive savings um, with the Harrier and with Tornado in reducing our support savings. But you then look at you know, how we did flying training, for instance, and how we manned different forces. And whilst, whilst, whilst we were 
you know, in, in earlier eras with larger forces, there may have been justification um, for you know, a maritime air component in reality or an army air component. When you were under those financial pressures, you really did need to look at, you know, how can we do this more efficiently and cheaper? Because otherwise, we were just going to end up with a smaller front line at the end of the day. There's only a finite amount of money out there. And uh, you spend it on people, you spend it on training, you spend it on logistic support, um, or you spend it on capital aircraft and, and equipment. So to me, it was, and the other aspect here is whilst in the past, you know, there was probably good justification for having maritime pilots flying F-4s, buccaneers, off-carriers and such like, where you needed to practice those sort of skills on a very regular basis because of those sort of demands. As we looked into the era of F-35, and that's where I was focused, you look at an F-35, it'll fly up to a carrier automatically. So gone is the sort of trauma of landing an F-4 or a buccaneer on a, a heaving deck. And so in my, my view, there was an opportunity to save money by streamlining the way that we delivered air power. Uh, and that was the justification for you know, where I, I was coming from. Didn't make me some friends in certain quarters, but... <laughs> You know, that I, 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 I passionately believe that that's, you know, as we get smaller, we cannot afford duplication. Do you still have to take a bit of a, a route around Admiralty when you walk through London? No, I've got some very good mates in the, <laughs> in the Navy. <laughs> but I do see your point. I mean, if you treated uh, an aircraft carrier as just another airfield and the RAF uh, employed to it as they would do or be based on one as they might do on a land-based uh, airfield, then you just you just do see the logic. Yeah, I mean, the, there's no doubt the carriers are hugely useful as uh, an alternate flexible basing option. And also, in certain circumstances, there is no doubt if you go and park a carrier off somebody's shore, they will take notice of you. And there are so certain scenarios when that is hugely valuable. Now, you did mention that, uh, of course, you were around when the Harrier was taken, some would say prematurely, out of service. Uh, what was the justification for that? That, that again, was really simple. Um, we had had, again, we were under financial pressure, and we had to find savings. And you either salami slice your existing force structure, so you say, get rid of a couple of tornado squadrons and a Harrier squadron, for instance. But actually, it's the logistic support of those platforms which is where you save the money. And the only way to save serious money is to um, get rid of a complete aircraft type. And then you then had to look at the relative size of the tornado force and the Harrier force. We only had three Harrier squadrons. At that stage, we had seven tornado squadrons. We were completely committed on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Harrier force was burnt out. They were basically going on operations, they were coming back from operations, having a bit of R&R, &R, and then working up and going on the next cycle. So you effectively had the whole force committed, and they'd been on operations for three years. 
that was unsustainable um, from our own harmony guidelines the MAD's harmony guide- guidelines it was unsustainable whereas you had seven tornado squadrons so they were much more resilient in truth they were a more it was a more capable aircraft as well um, had a greater range of weapons and, and it was say more capable so you were faced we were faced with how do we save the money what's the most efficient way of doing this and what's the most sustainable from an operational perspective so we made the decision we, we would get rid of the Harrier for all the downsides and we all recognized the downsides of it and nobody wanted to give up give them up but if you had to save money you had to save money yeah, I've got to admit it, Glenn, you just didn't like Harrier pilots. I went and learned to fly the Harrier, and it was a great aeroplane. <laughs> okay, I'll take it back. Okay, uh, I understand you've been closely involved with the RAF Museum. Uh, that must be fascinating. Uh, what are the future plans? Um, yeah, I've been Chairman of Trustees of the Museum now for, um, well, since 2010. It's great, because it's an opportunity to give something back to the service. And we've got the museum basically consists of two sites, one at, at Hendon in North London, the site of RAF Hendon, the original RAF Hendon, and then RAF Cosford. And um, when we were looking at what we would like to do for, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Air Force, we looked at uh, what we would like to do at Hendon. Um, and Hendon, the museum was actually created as a legacy of the 50th anniversary of the Air Force. So it was quite appropriate to look at what should we do at RAF Hendon uh, to celebrate the 100th. So we've had a complete transformation of the site. We've raised £26 million, and um, on or about the 21st of June this year, we will open uh, a transformed site at Hendon, which has got three new exhibitions. We brought back to life the old history of Hendon because most people who visit the site don't realise it was an airfield. So we tried to bring that back to life, but we've also plugged some gaps in the way we told the RAF story. So in reality, we did not have an exhibition um, which told the contemporary history of the Air Force from the Falklands onwards. So we have now, we will open a new exhibition which will cover from 1982 to the present day. I think it's also really important that we inspire the future generations to be interested in aerospace, air power in the round. So there will be another exhibition, which is the RAF now and the future. So this will all be about new technology, what the Air Force is doing today. And then the other new exhibition is clearly the 100 years of the RAF. So trying to encapsulate the key features of the Air Force and, and I do think we are different to the other two services it's, it's really interesting you know, as we, we do celebrate those hundred years you know, the first independent Air Force to start off with had a bit of a troubled birth um, but the Air Force is a real meritocracy you know, we draw people from across society um, and, and you, you work your way up through the organisation because of what you can deliver for the organisation. It is. It's a great family as well. Um, so, I mean, a lot of my listeners uh, have been to uh, and specifically come to London to uh, visit the Royal Air Force Museum. Um, later on in the year, then, it'll be a fantastic place for them to revisit. 
Absolutely. And once, uh, well, we've now virtually finished that transformation at Hendon and our centenary legacy programme will be turning our, our attention to our site up at RAF Cosford, which actually is um, you know, more modern than Hendon anyway. Um, and you know, there are things that we would like to do there. We've got a fantastic Cold War exhibition up there, but we want to make sure that people who go to Cosford you know, get the same experience and see exact, you know, virtually the same as what we show people down at Hendon. Absolutely. Um, how are you enjoying semi-retirement? When are you eventually going to hang up your flying boots completely? Well, having retired from the Air Force in 2009, I then started working for BAE Systems in 2011. And I've had a great time. Um, it's been really interesting, having been a customer for 35 years, to be um, delivering for the, for the RAF uh, and for many other Air Forces around the world. And I've really enjoyed it. It's been a fantastic experience seeing, really getting involved with some of the manufacturing and the technology and such like. It's kept me um, involved with the Air Force and other Air Forces, which has been fantastic. But I am now going into retirement fully and um, a bit more golf, a bit of sailing. But, it, you know, I've had a great time. Um, but I am looking forward to a slightly more relaxed lifestyle now. I don't blame you. One final question, if I may. What is it like to be a liveryman of the worshipful company of haberdashers? Oh, this is an interesting institution. So, uh, again, many of your listeners will know that we have in the UK these institutions called delivery companies, which go back you know, hundreds of years in some, some uh, cases. Um, what happened when I was boss of 13 Squadron, uh, most of the livery companies are affiliated with army regiments, naval vessels, and RAF squadrons, so they can maintain those links with um, the armed services. Um, the haberdashers uh, were not affiliated to an RAF squadron. So because we were a low-numbered squadron, we'd be around for a while, it was, it was felt. Um, then we were, we were nominated to be affiliated to the haberdashers. Um, they're not haberdashers today. Actually, the haberdashers are a great institution. They run some very, very good schools, very good schools. So that was one of the attractions. Uh, they're very much involved. They come from all walks of life in the city. It's a great opportunity for us to, us the Air Force, to be introduced to you know, people we would not normally rub shoulders with, people who operate in the city and such like. Um, but equally, it's really good for them to come and rub shoulders with people in the Royal Air Force. So we used to take them flying every so often, give them a trip in a, in a tornado. Um, and equally, you know, we would come to some of their events in London as well. So it's it's been a, a really good mutual um, relationship. Excellent. I was pulling the leg a little bit. I thought you might be. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant, Glenn. Thank you very much indeed for giving me your time. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, hearing some operational details of what you were doing uh, out in the Gulf and some really in-depth stuff as well. So thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.